you know, we put a lot of work into this presentation, so it's, uh, I guess, only fitting for us to want to share it with our podcast audience. I'm looking forward to it. Welcome to Longleaf Breeze, subsistence farmers using three simple principles, approaching but never reaching subsistence. It's got to be fun while we're doing it, and we don't make all misstatements. And now, Lee and Amanda Borden. Thanks, Adrian, and welcome to our podcast of February 14, 2013. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Hope uh, you and yours are having a wonderful day today. Um, we gave a presentation just this past Tuesday night to the Azalea Garden Club in Tallahassee, Alabama. Um, and it was about getting started growing food. They wanted some advice for the, um, even though they're avid gardeners and many of them very experienced. Um, they they wanted, tend to be focused on ornamental. Right. They wanted some people to come in and just talk about ways to get started with uh, growing vegetables and to a certain extent fruit so but we did focus on vegetables yes we did um, and so we thought we'd share that presentation with you today and we will uh, mount the slides if you go to the show notes page on longleafbreeze.com this uh, this is uh, podcast number 172 getting started growing food and if you go to that page I'll have a link to the slides I'm not quite sure where we'll house them yet but we'll have them out there Okay, well, let's talk about our, um, I guess, a, a statement we made to begin with with the group. Our fair disclosure is that we only talk about growing food organically. That's the only way we know how to do it. So that if they wanted to know more about how to use pesticides and herbicides, they might want to uh, look elsewhere for that information. And it information. was interesting. The group did have some questions, and we really were not able to help them with those. Yeah. So, uh. but But most of it was focused on what yeah. we could help them with. Uh, we talked about the topics that we'll cover. We gave them a, a preview, talk about the essentials for growing food, the best and easiest vegetables to grow when you're new, how to use um, organic methods of weed control and pest control, and the advantages of raised beds versus planting directly into the ground. The first thing that we think is important to think about when you're getting started growing food is to start small. This is one of the lessons that we learned the hard way uh, because we tried to get too big too fast. And um, what happens when you try to grow too much is you end up neglecting it. That's or right. Or it gets out of control. Or it gets out of control. That's right. But weeds and, just, and pests and everything... Uh, and you need it. a lot of sun for food crops, more sun than you need for ornamentals. I mean, you can grow pansies and that sort of thing with very limited sunshine, but there's just not a lot of food you can grow without having at least six hours a day of sunshine. Soil is important, and we urged our audience to, as we urge you, to run a soil test on your um, where you're planning to plant uh, to determine the um, pH and then, if, of course, if it's too acid or too alkaline, you'll need to amend the soil in some way. But um, near us, Auburn University, I mean, for us, that's the most convenient place to have our soil test done. Um, you might live near some other place that would, another maybe a land-grant university that runs soil tests, but we recommend that. Um, and they'll give you feedback, you know, about what you need to do about your, plant, your um, soil. Then we talked about, seeds versus plants, whether to direct seed, whether to um, buy a transplant from a store, start your own seed, etc., and the importance of a water source. 
very important. And of course, it takes time and infinite patience to pull off vegetable gardening. Now, about that water, um, the you know you we've heard about how people have been able to grow, and some people still are able to grow with no auxiliary water. But in our experience, growing the multiple different kinds of plants we do, we really have just felt like we needed to have an auxiliary water source. And for us, it's drip irrigation. But here are some of the principles. You need to avoid wetting the leaves, particularly in the late afternoon or evening, because what you don't want to do is have wet foliage going into the night on a regular basis. Uh, for us, drip irrigation is the best way to go about it. It, it, it does involve a capital expenditure at the outset, but in our experience, it is well worth it because you get the mm -hmm. timer, you get deep watering in the roots where the plants need it uh, without watering the foliage. Uh, soaker hose is a possible substitute, but it is a pale imitation of the mm -hmm. benefits of drip irrigation. Um, you could possibly, if you are really small, do this with careful hand watering. Uh, again, being careful to get the water down to the roots where the, mm -hmm. where the plants need it rather than just watering generally in the foliage. What we do encourage you to avoid are broadcast sprinklers. Those are by far the easiest way to water, but they also tend to be the least helpful for the plants. You know, once you get it installed, drip irrigation is the easiest way to water. Well, that's true. Once you get Good it point. installed, but... As you said, you know, if somebody doesn't want to take that time and money uh, up front, then, yeah, they'll pull out the old sprinkler. Uh, well, let's talk about some of the best vegetables for somebody who's just starting out growing food. We think um, spring peas, early peas are good. Um, okra, both of those can be started from seed directly in the ground. Peppers are easy, and that you must start as, well, you can start your own seed, but you've got to put it outside in the ground as a transplant. But still, they're, they're easy to do. Um, rattlesnake beans or other kinds of pole beans, uh, you can direct seed those. Cucumbers, you can either transplant or seed those in the ground. Um, those, and then for fall, well, I mean, you can do it earlier or you can do it in the spring. But we've had better luck in the fall with this crop, collards. Collards, you just, I mean, I just buy my transplants at the store, put them in the ground. They grow very well around here. Well, the big problem here, Amanda, is that you have not said anything about tomatoes. I know. And the reason is that tomatoes are probably one of the most difficult um, vegetables to grow. Um, one of the main reasons is they have uh, all kinds of diseases and pests in particular. And one of the first, um, and I hope that our audience does get to look at the slides because we have a big old juicy-looking, horrible-looking hornworm sitting there about to eat some poor plant down to a nub, which it can do overnight, practically. They're, they're uh, quite It's just amazing how much damage yeah, they can do in an really, afternoon. Yeah. Um, another problem with tomatoes is they can easily develop blossom end rot in the fruit. Um, we've got a picture of that, but if you see it, I mean, you probably have seen this before. It's um, uh, very damaging to the fruit, and you just want to get rid of it. Um, or, well, actually, we're going to talk about how to prevent it, but it's difficult sometimes. Uh, there are different kinds of blights that can affect tomatoes, early blight, late blight, southern blight, blights for any old reason. <laughs> um, they 
are rarely fatal to the plant. They can be fatal, but um, even if they don't kill the plant, it's frustrating and um, you know, many times you just, you lose your crop, you lose that tomato plant. Um, we have long, hot, dry summers. When I say dry, they're dry in terms of rain, but they're humid too. And all of that, that high humidity and heat um, is very, makes it that much more difficult to, to grow tomatoes successfully. And we've had summers when the green tomatoes that would set fruit and then the mm-hmm. tomatoes would just sit there green on the vine for weeks at the time That's right. because the temperature was just so hot. They just couldn't, yeah. couldn't ripen. Uh, um, and then another problem with tomatoes is distracted gardeners. That is, if you are not on top of those tomatoes all the time, every day, you know, to, to monitor for hornworms, to, to make sure you don't have some blight starting out or something, then y- you could lose your tomatoes. Yeah, 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 I hear you, but we're going to grow in tomatoes anyway. That's right, because that's the most popular crop to grow, bar none. For Everybody home, wants to grow for tomatoes. For home gardeners, right. Um, and it was fascinating when we were talking with the garden club members, after we had gone through this, the questions they had were primarily about tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Everybody's interested, and I, I have to admit I'm right there. The first seeds we ever tried to germinate were tomatoes Absolutely, seeds. I remember. So, yeah. you know, I just wanted my own tomatoes, partly because they're so good when you grow them, and the ones in the store this time of year are so bad. You know, there's just, <laughs> it's like they're two totally different kinds of food. But let's talk about, if you are going to grow tomatoes, what are some things you can do? Well, because of the problems, like you said, the, the hot sun in the summertime, if you can, if you have a location to plant um, where you get a lot, you get more, all morning sun and uh, up to six hours, like we said earlier. But if you get afternoon shade in that spot, that's ideal. Go for it. Um, you want to start with transplants. And uh, you can either, what I do now is I actually order my seed from the uh, seed company and start mine indoors. But you can buy transplants uh, from big box stores or your local nursery or, or any place. And as long as they're healthy plants, you should be fine. You want to plant them deep. One thing that we, um, and we have a, a, um, a picture that was associated with this, and I was able to point out where on the plant it needed to be, um, when you get ready to put it in the ground, how deep it needs to go. Much deeper than you think. Yeah, because, um, and, and really, if you look at the picture, you're going to go up, you're going to take the the lower leaves off and go up to like where there's a, you know, maybe two or three branches at the top and plant there. Um, most, those of you who've done any kind of working with transplants know that most plants you plant them container, container deep, not tomatoes. Because if you go ahead and put that entire stem down in the soil and you don't have to dig down to, you know, uh, doesn't two have feet to be deep. vertical. Right. Though. doesn't have to be vertical. You can, uh, dig a trench and just lay the tomato plant in there. And as long as that stem is, and the, of course the root ball, is covered up well with soil, those little kind of hairs that are on the stem of a tomato will form into roots, and that'll give you a nice uh, developed root system, which is what you need for a healthy plant. Um, you are going to need to support tomatoes, either with cages or trellis. Uh, they, they, it's just something that no, even if they're determinate and they're not going to get as tall, you still need some sort of support. And, of course, regular watering. We mentioned blossom end rot earlier. One of the problems uh, or one of the causes of that, it's really traceable to uh, lack of calcium in the plant. Well, the way they get the calcium, the appropriate amounts, is through water. 
And um, if the if they are not watered consistently, or if a drought hits, or you get too much water, um, it can develop into calcium deposits or calcium problems, therefore blossom end rot. So that's another reason I would say drip irrigation would help you out on that. Um, you want to beware over fertilizing your tomatoes. Um, they can be, you don't want so much nitrogen going into them that they have tons of foliage, but you don't get any fruit. That would defeat the purpose, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And a lot of people have heard they need to add Epsom salts to tomatoes. A lot and of I, people's grandfather, you know, that was the old way, right? I mean, right. grandfathers talk about that. And a, lot of, and a lot of people have been, have grown up doing that. Right. Uh, we see that as a, a short-term strategy because it's hard on the soil to put Epsom salts down there. Uh, in the long run, that's going to fatigue your soil a lot faster than you realize. So we're not big proponents of that. And I've never used it, and I've We've had fine tomatoes. Salts, yeah. yeah, and of course you want to keep your fruit off the ground. That's why you have the trellises, but you know it could rot very easily down there. And this is a trick that I found uh, for, as an organic grower to combat those dreaded hornworms, interplant with basil and marigold. Um, they have the effect, and I've tried it out, and it's worked beautifully, just to have those companion plants in there. That uh, It's amazing the difference it made, yeah. like night and day, between uh, not interplanting and interplanting mm -hmm. with marigold and basil. It just wiped out our hornworm problem virtually overnight. Yeah, yeah it really did. Um, so... Of course, now we want to talk about another subject, trellising, because for a lot of plants, we just talked about tomatoes being one of them, but for many uh, vegetables, you do need to have some kind of trellis for that plant to climb or be tied to or lean up against or uh, et cetera. Peas, pole beans, lima beans, of course, tomatoes. Uh, you can even trellis cucumbers. Um, don't have to with them, but you could. And um, as the one who normally puts in the trellis, I am a big proponent of putting the trellis up before you plant the crop. And the downside of waiting until after you've planted is that the trellis is going to be hard on the plants. And there's a real risk that you're going to trample the plants in the process of getting mm -hmm. the trellis up. So we're, we always try to get the trellis up and then plant to it. Right. And we showed a couple of pictures of... Uh, first of all, some peas, and then later some green beans, pole beans that we had trellised. And just to show how much, uh, how the plants could spread out, get lots of light coming in there, which is part of what they need to And it makes it easier food. on you when you're harvesting. Right. And, of course, the harvesting, another subject, knowing when to harvest, uh, because you'd hate to go to all that work to plant these uh, lovelies and then have no food to show for it because you didn't harvest it at the right time it, or it rotted or whatever. So most seed packets, when you um, order those, read them. They not only tell you how deep to plant the seed, the spacing, but most of them will also have instructions about when to harvest uh, or what the plant should look like, etc. Um, there's some guidelines. For example, green beans shouldn't be larger than the size of a pencil. Uh, I found that out the hard way. I let my rattlesnake <laughs> beans go too long one time, and they were just tough and stringy. Uh, whereas when I planted, when I picked them earlier, when they were the a size of a good size pencil, but nevertheless, um, not they had not gotten too fat. They were much more tender. Uh, cantaloupe, a rule of thumb there. Again, there are some exceptions, but most varieties of cantaloupe um, will separate very easily or naturally from the stem when they're ripe and ready to go. 
Watermelon, we're still working on because it, we haven't found any way to tell from looking at the watermelon that it's ready. And everybody says, thump it. Okay, you thump it, then what? Yeah. Um, and I we did. still can't tell from hearing the way it thumps whether it's ripe or right. not. And, and part of it is I would thump them and think, oh, that doesn't sound ripe. But then they'd split or something. So, And then I could tell inside, well, I can't eat it because it's split open. But I could tell it was probably ripe enough to eat. <coughs> I could tell it was probably still ripe enough that we could have eaten it if we could have rescued it in time. So we will keep uh, keep you posted about that. We also, um, cucumbers need to be a certain uh, size, but we showed a picture of one that <laughs> kind of got, got hidden out of away. Control. Yeah, and got hidden under some leaves. And by the time I rescued it, it was More almost the size of a watermelon size. and it wasn't very <laughs> good to eat. So you want to, you know, whatever kind of food you're growing, just make sure you harvest at the, harvest at the proper time. Let's talk a little bit about okra because okra is such an effective crop here in central Alabama in these hot, dry summers. We recommended uh, one of the most popular varieties to, to plant is Clemson Spineless, but also um, Cajun Jewel has worked well for me, Alabama Red, and even one called Burgundy. They've grown very well in this area. Plus, okra is gorgeous. Here's a great picture of an okra blossom. And they're just beautiful flowers. You want to plant them uh, April through June. If, if if your soil is not warm enough, that seed will not germinate. So you might yeah, as well wait. Yeah, that's probably the number one error with okra is people try to plant it too early and then it doesn't germinate and they think, oh, there's something wrong with that seed or I did something wrong. Well, yeah, you did do something wrong. You planted it too soon. Right. So just make sure your soil temp is up. And generally in this area, central Alabama, you're good in April. Um, you can space, spacing's really important with these plants because they will get big. Um, and I didn't believe it the first time and I made the mistake of planting them too close and lived to regret it. But if you've got one of the larger varieties like Clemson Spineless, Alabama Red or Burgundy, be sure to give it no less than 18 inches, preferably 18 to 24 inches. Cajun Jewel is a little bit smaller um, type and you could just put those 18 inches apart. Um, and, of course, you've got to be able to get in there to harvest them, and they're kind of sticky, stickly, and so, you know, you just don't want to have them too close together. When the Here's pods... another one that's too easy, that's easy to overlook harvesting. One of the watchwords we heard early on with okra is it needs to be well-picked, meaning you need to pick it virtually daily yeah, during the season. Yeah, it grows fast. Uh, because those pods do develop really quickly, and they will very quickly get too large, so... Uh, go ahead and pick them when they're two to three inches long, and they will be tender and tasty. And if you keep it well-picked, it'll continue producing okra, which yeah. is something everybody wants. Yeah. Here's a great picture of you and Adrian, uh, our daughter, our announcer, uh, picking okra from, uh, I think that's a I think that one Alabama may red. be, yes, because that one got very large. Um yeah. I remember that. And yeah. uh, this is what happens when you let it grow too tall. We've learned since then uh, that the best thing to do with okra is to cut it back in August. This says six to eight inches. Normally, we cut it back more like thigh high, waist high. Mm -hmm. um, Refertilize, add some compost to it, whatever, and it will uh, leaf out. And yes, you end up with pods that are down around knee high, but. Um, they're a whole lot easier to deal with than, than pods that are 12 feet high. Yeah, 12 and 14 and on up there. That's right. Um, 
another guideline that we talked about was buying transplants because if you are going to go to a store to buy your transplants and not start your own seed, be sure you go someplace, a reputable nursery um, or uh, that, that you know that they sell and deal with healthy plants. And when you're looking at those shelves of plants, try to get them off the top rack if at all possible because if there's any kind of disease, uh, and you know how they water, if you've seen them at the whether it's Walmart or Superfoods or, you know, um, they wherever. Start they, the they start at the top and it all yeah, drips down. It drips down. And so if it can spread disease. And the top plants are also more likely to get the sun they need. They're more likely to dry out, you know, to, I don't mean the soil drying out, but the plant leaves drying off the way they need to. So get from, buy from the top. We have a picture of a banana uh, pepper that I bought as a transplant that was very healthy. Uh, a little bit about weed control. One of the things we do for weed control is to make sure we're moving crops around to confuse the uh, weeds as much as we can. And, and, the, and the pests, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we use a lot of cover crops. Uh, this is a great shot of you out in the garden with the sun hemp, S-U-N-N-H-E-M-P. Um, it's a non-native legume. Uh, that's uh, the seeds are rather expensive, but it's a great cover crop and creates these wonderful deep root channels. So we love using sun hemp in the summertime. And then this is another uh, cover crop. This one is more of a winter cover crop, black oats. And black oats create decent root channels, but they're the really stars at suppressing weeds. Oh, yeah. And the wonderful, wonderful thing about black oats is when you get ready to plant, mm -hmm. you just pull those black oats up and they just let go of the soil so easily. Yeah, pretty easily. And the picture of you there with the black oats, um, you can see I've, I seeded those pretty heavily, more so than you would do if you were doing some huge orchard. Or, uh, But, but if you, we have raised beds, and they're fairly small, so I wanted to make sure that no weeds got in there. <laughs> and you did. We also use mulch and physical barriers. Um, we just experimented this year for the first time with this um, paper mulch product right weed called? guard weed okay guard. weed guard and it works really well it's you just in fact when i planted strawberries i just rolled it out and then poked a little hole in it for each strawberry transplant put that in but uh, the, what you must be careful with is to weight it down with mulch or you know hay, hay or, something or like wood that. chips or something because it blew away it, after yeah. The, yeah and um two you can also if you don't want to buy weed guard you can use newspaper and do the same um, thing. And do the same that. thing, just cover it up with some, some hay or, or uh, wood mulch. You want to avoid having bare soil at any time. Um, just It needs to either have cover crop or your target crop on it. Um, if your weeds do get out of control, which ours have, we've done this. We, Once, 16 years ago, I remember. Yeah, <laughs> we've used solarization. Solarization is a good practice for um, at least killing the weeds that are there right then, they, it's not going to kill them permanently. If you take that off, they'll come back. But, but it will if, knock them back and give you a little running start. Exactly. And then you can plant your crops and put mulch around it and, and keep them from coming back um, once you get the plants in. But it's, it involves putting clear plastic over the weeds. And, it and weighting it down so that the plastic is right. really close to the soil and can create some heat. There. Works better in the hot summertime, really. Um, and, of course, there's always the tried and true technique of getting down on your hands and knees and pulling weeds. But that's not much fun. So we try to do all the others before we have to do that one. Um, 
We also talked about organic pest control. Uh, one of the first by, by words there is if you have healthy soil, that's going to help you have healthy plants. And healthy plants are better able to resist pests than sad, you know, unhealthy plants. And I'm sure you probably have heard this. It, it took us a while to figure it out. Pests go after unhealthy plants. So if your plants are healthy, they are less likely to be attacked. But one thing you can do to uh, make your plants healthier is when you are purchasing a transplant or a seed, either one, choose varieties carefully. Try to choose varieties that have as much resistance to certain kinds of um, disease, if, if available. We showed a picture of a squash bug that was actually had the nerve to go beyond the squash plants over to the neighboring <laughs> row of peas. But um, they, <laughs> um, squash bugs, unfortunately, that's one that's very difficult to um, uh, find a predator for it or, or, or any kind of resistance. But we show a picture as well of recognizing squash bug leaves, uh, squash bug eggs that are on the backside of a leaf. And these are actually pea leaves that the yeah. squash bugs are Again, on the backside they were, of. They were brazen little squash yeah. bugs that year. And this is a squash vine borer damage. Uh, they will actually kill the entire plant. Yeah. Um, and one thing, we say squash suggestions. Uh, we do know of certain types or species, actually, of squash that are more resistant to vine borers than others. Would you allow us to uh, maybe use that handout yes, that you made available? We'll mm -hmm. go ahead and add that to the show notes page as well. So that's there's a nice handout that you'll be able to see that has Amanda's suggestions about which crops work better right. with these pests. And, and about the squash, I also, on that same handout, I, I do tell about kinds of tomatoes that work for me. Um, and that I've grown successfully. So, you know, you'll get, you know, take whatever you want to information-wise from that. Um, companion planting, such as interplanting basil and marigold with tomatoes, that's worked well too because partly something like a marigold, some plants actually repel the pests, have some uh, an odor or a, something that's noxious to that pest. In other cases, it's simply a method of confusing the pest so that it doesn't, you know, it gets messed up because it's, trying to go down a whole row of tomatoes and it keeps running into some other kind of plant. So I, I do suggest companion planting. Uh, and, and that's simply finding plants that do well together. There are some plants that don't need to be grown together. But I found all the information I needed online. If you just Google companion plant, planting, you'll be able to find it. Physical barriers also work to help with pests because like a row cover. Yeah. We had a problem with um, Carolina grasshoppers eating our tender little collard transplants one year. Um, or and, and broccoli, all the fall veg. And we had to, uh, ended up having to pull those plants because they were mostly eaten up, put in new ones, and then we just planted, uh, We I'm sorry, we applied row cover until those plants got large enough that they had uh, enough girth, I guess, to withstand uh, little grasshoppers on them. Yeah. Um, another way that we have found works really well is to be patient and let God take care of it. What you're seeing here is a picture of a ladybug, and she is our savior when it comes to our peas. This is black-eyed peas here that are growing, and what we had one year was a real epidemic of aphid damage to our black-eyed peas, and 
rather than overreacting, we just said, okay, let's let's be patient. And we planted them next year, and the ladybugs were there in force, and they controlled the aphids for us, and we never had to do anything other than that. So that worked out really well. Saving seed is also a way of dealing with pests. You might wonder, well, how does that help? Because if you have a cultivar or, you know, you have a plant growing out in your uh, yard that has been successful, that is, it's, it's survived the pests, it's a healthy plant, and, a spe- and of course, if it's a fruit or a, a vegetable that tastes good to you, then if you save the seed and try to um, replicate, you know, whatever genetically is in that seed, it's built up some kind of resistance usually to your your pests and your um, diseases that are in that area. So it'll develop help you develop cultivars ideally, ideally suited to the conditions you have. We've saved seed for several types of um, plants, cantal- cantaloupe, lima beans, um, different kinds of green beans, different kinds of squashes. And we have a picture of me holding some rattlesnake beans that I saved. Um, and uh, this year we might get even more adventurous and save a lot of other kinds of seeds that we've not tried before. We have uh, we started out growing in the ground, and then we have uh, lately changed to raised beds. The disadvantage of raised beds is they cost money to get started, and it's quite a bit of trouble to build the raised beds and get them leveled up and so forth on our what we learned is a hilly site. We yes. always thought of it as more or less flat, and it's not. Um, and in addition, raised beds dry out faster. So if you're going to go with raised beds, you probably aren't need to be even more mindful of that water source. But the advantage of raised beds is they can really help with back problems because you're up a little higher yeah. when you're dealing with the soil and the plants. And you have much better control of weeds and soil quality. In our case, we had a real problem that the the grass in the aisles was encroaching on the rows. And you, as the farmer-in-chief, were pulling weeds and then going back and having to pull weeds a week later. And it was just exhausting. It really was. Yeah. So now we have these raised beds, and what we have is a clear division between the turf that I can maintain and the surface of the bed, which you can maintain, and it seems to be working well. Right. Of course, we have not been through a summer growing season with those beds. So I guess we're, it's a little soon for us to say that uh, we know how this is going to work. I haven't done a summer with them, but you can see from the picture that we do have uh, fall vegetables. Those are in the foreground. You see some carrots, and then there's some lovely red Russian kale and some red shidori kale. And then, of course, behind that is some savoy cabbage. Yeah, this is a great shot showing how quick, how closely together we're able to plant things in the raised bed. You're, you're, you're planting much more closely than you would be in the ground. Well, I got a chance to talk a little bit about fruit here. Um, you know, vegetables, they come popping out of the ground the first year. Fruit, you have to start it and be patient, and we are in our third year now um, of, of tr- fruit orcharding. Um, and I guess this year we're really looking to see some 
real production from our fruit trees. Certainly hope so. Uh, others, we won't see any production even now in the third or fourth year. Uh, but two no-brainers for our area here around central Alabama are blueberries, and you see here some of our blueberries, still very small, but they're already producing rather well, and muscadines. And we got this great shot of our grandson Smith helping Grandmere pick muscadines, and uh, we will have much better production this year because our vines are getting bigger and bigger. Growing foods are just a whole lot of fun. This is one of your lunches that you fixed entirely from the garden. It was a salad with uh, different colored tomatoes, yellow and red ones, and some lettuce from the garden. And uh, we have other photographs of each of those being one day's harvest from the garden, including, if you, uh, if you look closely at it, I even have a little garlic in there, which is one of my new favorite things to grow. We, are, we like to refer people to the website of the Alabama Cooperative Extension System, which has a lot of really useful information for people who are trying to grow their own food. There is a publication that ACES produces on raised beds, ANR 1345, and your Bible, the, veg the Vegetable Guarding uh, ANR 0479, you use that still now, even as knowledgeable oh, yes. as you are. Uh, because it gives you ideas about what to plant, uh, which season of the year, what varieties grow well in our area. So um, it's invaluable information. And, of and course, there's a helpline. For those of you, if you live in our area or really anywhere in the state of Alabama, there's a toll-free number, 877-252-4769. You can call. It opens March 1st and uh, ask your questions. And if you are really serious about this, uh, we commend to you becoming a master gardener. It's a, it's a considerable time commitment. You would be going to class for about four hours every week for a period of 12 weeks, during which you would become quite knowledgeable about uh, plant uh, pathology, plant biology, uh, what grows well in terms of food, what grows well in terms of ornamentals. And it's just a great way to get a jump start on your knowledge of gardening. But then you get a chance to give back to the community. And we master gardeners become the hands, feet, eyes, and ears of the county extension agents. And we leverage the county extension agent in our case, our wonderful extension agent, Mallory Kelly. We're so happy we to have her. We love Mallory, and we want to do everything we can to make her life pleasant. So she will continue in that right. role. Um, but and, and that's what master gardeners do. We help the county extension agent get out information to the public so that the county extension agent uh, is as productive as possible. Right. And, and that even goes back to uh, the land-grant universities, like in our case, Auburn is our closest one, um, that, you know, that they give us the research, the knowledge of how to deal with these issues of planting and growing. It's, in other words, the information you get when you take the Master Gardener course, as well as the information dispensed through the helpline, is all based on research about vegetable garden in our case vegetable gardening or you know whatever or fruit or, or, fruit or whatever any ornamentals any it's all research based and so therefore we encourage you you're not going to get just a bunch of old wives tales or what somebody's 
Uncle Hank thought worked well. It, it may be that that is correct information, but it needs to be verified through research. And we love the fact that we're a part of that team of people trying to help disseminate that information. Thank you so much for your patience and hanging with us. We know this has run a little longer than our normal podcast link, but we thought it was important to share this with you. Hope you have a great week, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week. You've been listening to Longleaf Breeze with Lee and Amanda Borden. You can call the farm at 334-625-8682. Send email to letters at longleafbreeze.com. Our address is P.O. Box 780-446, Tallahassee, Alabama, 36078. Visit us at longleafbreeze.com to learn more about the farm, to browse our archive, and to look over our planting database. You can also read the daily farm log and check in with Lee and Amanda. That's longleafbreeze.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.